Hello, and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. Just before we get into it, this is co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and I wanted to quickly mention that you can find Close Talking on iTunes, and more importantly, you can rate us there and leave us a review. That is the best way for us to find new listeners. The more ratings and positive reviews we get, the better we do in the magical Apple Podcasts, iTunes algorithm and the more listeners can find us so if you have a second and you like what we do here on close talking if you pop over to itunes and give us a rating and a review preferably five stars but obviously you're a free agent uh that would be fantastic okay on with the show hello and welcome to an all-new episode of close talking i am your co-host from the east coast jack rossiter munley and I am your co-host from the Third Coast, the Midwest, the greatest region of the country and the world, Connor McMurray Stratton. It's definitely a region of the country. All right. All right. Jack is from Illinois, as am I, and that constitutes a huge betrayal of his loyalties. But well, it's not to be. I mean, we all expect it. You go to New York. You have a lot of fun. You're surrounded by interesting people. You see the best music that exists. And you think, oh, New York is all there is. It's all you need. It's all you've got. There was also that hilarious time in the early 90s when I was born in Albany. All right. This is a bunch (laughs) of technicalities masquerading as a rebuttal. I'm not saying that New York is better. I'm just... Not sure that uh, the Midwest is the best. I mean, every everywhere's got its qualities, you know. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I, I see would. Where I we would stand. point you to the Bob Seger song "Katmandu," where he lists many different qualities of different parts of the United States. <laughs> okay, I'll give that a listen and get back. I've to got you. no kick against the southern states. Every time I've been there, it's been great. <laughs> That's a great line. Travel to the East Coast. You want people? They got the most. (laughs) We are here to talk. This is somewhat appropriate. We are here to talk about something musical that takes place in New York City because we are talking about Mary Carr's poem, Carnegie Hall Rush Seats. Yes, I'm very excited about this one. I am too. Uh, I, I really like when poetry and music are in conversation with each other in all the different ways that happens. Uh, Before we do the poem, Mary Carr, pretty well known. She is a prominent memoirist, essayist, and poet. She rose to prominence in 1995 with the publication of her book, The Liars Club, which was a memoir about her early and very difficult life. Um, And she followed that up with a couple of other really excellent memoirs, Cherry, a memoir, and Lit, a memoir. Lit dealt with her struggles with alcoholism as an adult and her recovery from that and also uh, her eventual discovery of religion, which was something kind of new and different for her in her adult life. And she's somebody who speaks really interestingly and movingly about her relationship with religion and prayer and poetry. Uh, So I highly recommend checking out some of her essays on that subject. It's really Good stuff. Her most recent book of poetry came out in, wait for it, 2018. And it oh is called, God. I know. Uh, yeah, no, she's still writing all kinds of great work. Um, but her latest collection, Tropic of Squalor from HarperCollins, came out this year. And this poem was published in The New Yorker in 2017. Carnegie Hall Rush Seats by Mary Carr. Whatever else the orchestra says... The cello insists, you're dying. It speaks from the core of the tree's hacked out heart, shaped and smoothed like a woman. Be glad you are not hard wood yourself and can hear it. Every day, the cello is taken into someone's arms, taken between spread legs and lured into its shivering. The arm saws and saws and all the sacred cries of saints and demons issue from the carved cleft holes. Like all of us, it aches, sending up moans from the pit we balance on the edge of. This is a good one. 
Yeah, yeah. I the minute that I read it, I instantly was like, "Oh, we got to talk about this." <laughs> and I didn't even really realize why because I've since had a lot of more thoughts that I didn't have the first time I read it. The first time I read it, my thought that I wrote down on my sheet here uh, was just cellos are sexy. <laughs> and that was it. And I have since dug deeper into the poem. Um, as usual, I think this poem doesn't need it as much as most, but our quick little narrative overlay is basically rush seats are when you get last minute cheap tickets to a concert or to, it comes up more often, I think with Broadway plays, but they're yeah. like leftover tickets or sometimes you can sign up for like a ticket lottery and then you get these like last minute seats to go see something cool. And so this is kind of about the unexpected, I guess, joy of getting to go to one of these concerts at Carnegie Hall. You get the idea that there's an orchestra playing, whatever else the orchestra says, the cello insists you're dying. So you have an orchestra playing and then this sort of seems to me like the thoughts of someone watching, I guess, like the cello's solo piece or like moment within the the larger piece of music. It felt like the cello got featured at some point and this is like reflections on that moment. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I love this poem. It's like, first of all, the beginning is amazing. I wish I had written that. Whatever else the orchestra is saying, the cello insists you're dying. That's so good um gets you hooked all, it gets you hooked because it's like i love the idea it just sort of brings you in immediately like you're sort of part of a conversation that's already happening you know um but then the casualness that leads into the total gravity of what the cello is saying you know whatever else the orchestra says it's like blah 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 um but then it's like a great move because it's already the, the sort of the idiom of the whatever else this says. Um, but that's like personifying the orchestra as like a kind of, you know, bunch of talking heads or something, um, which is like such a cool way to think about a bunch of instruments. Um, and then the cello's just there being like, <laughs> you're dying, <laughs> which is so intense. Um, but I think, you know, really gets at, like immediately sets the stakes you know and it's it's kind of you know the on one level it's a poem about how transformative and sort of ecstatic music can make you feel um i feel like that's the kind of like the basic thing behind it and in that way it is similar to we talked about on an earlier episode um ada limon's one about Aretha Franklin. Uh, what was that called again? Some of Your Love With Me. Some of Your Love With Me, um, which was a similar kind of speaker who's like being totally transfixed and then transformed by the song. Yeah, but I, but I, at the same time, this one goes in a totally different direction um, and feels like pretty distinct. Um, and I know that, you know, you were, you had gravitated toward both of those poems. I'm curious, you know, what comparisons you had uh between those yeah and like what the what about this one felt distinct before i answer that quickly i wanted to say that i like that you brought up the way that the orchestra is personified because it also not only then personifies the cello but intensely humanizes it which then kind of moves through the rest of the poem uh yeah so not coincidentally i also picked that ada limon poem and there are some definite similarities, but whereas that felt like an individual in conversation with another person they were experiencing through their music, and they were reflecting on the intensity of that, this felt more like a person being just affected by music itself and by an instrument rather than... Uh, focusing on another human being. So it's not about the performer, it's about the cello. It's not about the lyrics of a song or, you know, the words. It's about this piece of, I mean, probably orchestral music. There's an orchestra playing it. So 
Um, that to me felt a little bit different. And then the way that the direction of the reflection that the individual offers who is experiencing the music isn't so much about herself. It's about the experience of taking the dead wood of an instrument and filling it with so much vibrancy and life and using that as a means of transferring emotion and really getting swept up in the emotions that what are fundamentally, you know, a tree's hacked out heart that has been smoothed. It's like dead wood, but it's alive. And in many instances it speaks. Yeah. I really like that. That's really, that seems really right. Um, one thing that it also makes me think of is like, it's not just about, you know, one could write a poem like, oh, this song was so good. It made me so happy. It filled me with so many feelings, blah, blah, blah. But from the outset, the cello is insisting that you're dying. And there's something about this that actually makes me think of um, if we want to take a little trip down literary lane. I would love to do that because I have a detour along a similar country road planned for a little later on in this episode. So let's do it. Well, be careful because my literary lane is on a high peak overlooking a vast expanse that is alternately beautiful and terrifying. Is that the one, the same one that has been painted and put on many covers of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? (laughs) Probably. Um, Okay, so now that I've exhausted my very poor uh, little metaphorical landscape, um, I feel like this poem is talking about something that's similar to the the idea of the sublime um, in sort of capital R romantic uh, art and also philosophy um, and also literature. Um, and the idea of the sublime and also the idea of terror. Um, cause one thing that's interesting to me about this poem is it, not just the, the, you're dying part, but then there's this, the part at the end where the, the arm song and song, and it's not just the sacred cries of saints, but it's also the demons that are sort of issuing from the carved cleft holes. And that idea of both the demons and and the saints um seems really important to this poem um and so in sort of the romantic era um so romanticism which was like at least in england um was i think largely in the 1800s um one of its big ideas was the idea of the sublime um the philosopher edmund burke uh, actually talked about the sublime um, and he sort of talked about it. He said, quote, uh, it's an experience that excites the ideas of pain and danger that produces, quote, the strongest emotion that the mind is capable of feeling. Um, and it's really interesting to me because, you know, when I first learned about it, there's this this painting, um, which is like sort of like what I always associate with with uh, the sublime and romanticism, it's called "Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog." Uh, we'll link to it. It's by Casper David Friedrich. Um, so it's this guy that could either be, you know, he's he looks very like a, he looks like he could go swashbuckling or he could recite Shakespeare. He's got a nice little sword at his side. He's got a sharp coat the black boots etc and he's standing on this like big uh rocky precipice um looking out over these clouds um and you know this sort of huge landscape and one thing that's striking about it is that it, on the one hand it is beautiful um you know it's amazing in the kind of simple like holy crap that's crazy um but it's also like terrifying in both the new sense of the word, but also like the old sense of the word, which is like, it's kind of scary. Like there's a sort of sense of threat that's there. Like you could be swallowed up by the sea of fog. You know, you're like right before, you know, um, 
you know, you're right before like a huge abyss, you know, or, or the great unknown in this kind of way. Um, but it's this kind of terror in uh, the old sense. And I think Jack had, uh, Jack has a the physical, possibly the last physical copies of the Oxford English Dictionary in his apartment. So if you could read for us that the great definition of both, I think, sublime, but also terror. Yeah. So sublime has a bunch of definitions. The one that uh, is operating here is in the Oxford English Dictionary, the seventh, which is of things in nature and art affecting the mind with a sense of overwhelming grandeur or irresistible power calculated to inspire awe, deep reverence, or lofty emotion by reason of its beauty, vastness, or grandeur. And so I like, I want to, I like connecting this to that because I don't know, it, it, it's one of those things that kind of, um, like it had its, it's sort of maybe peak moment in the romantic era where like a lot of artists and thinkers were like thinking about, you know, the turbulent landscape of nature that can do all these crazy things and sort of the, this absolute unknown that's like exhilarating and scary at the same time. Um, and, you know, and it, it, I think was maybe at its most, concentrated articulation during that era but it's something that i think has sort of continued to this day um and it's something that you know i think we all experience various forms of i mean that's just sort of like where it comes out of is just like an experience that humans have when we're just confronted by something that's like so amazing but like also shakes you to the core you know in some kind of way that that it's not just like good or bad or um it's like life altering um and it's cool to see this poem um that's about you know at carnegie hall 2017 listening to this cello and having this experience that's being described in a way that, you know, feels like the description of the sublime or a description of sort of, of terror, you know, um, being moved by the instrument, but also the instruments telling you that you're dying. You know, it's that like that, the cello saying that seems to be similar to, you know, standing on the edge of this cliff, looking out over this, you know, sea of fog um, and being like, you know, death is there, like very close to you. Um, so, yeah, I wish I was more of a, a scholar on the subject, but I just wanted to bring that in because it felt really relevant uh, for this poem. Totally. I love all of that. And it's so cool. And you, I think you're right on because the stakes are set up right away that this is life and death like you're in this realm of great consequence even though it's an every not every day necessarily but it's a pretty it could be a benign or not on that lofty level of a experience of like yeah i went to a concert at carnegie hall it was cool but the setting perhaps it was unexpected because they're rush seats but like something made this stand out to this degree yeah I like all of that. I went back a little farther than the romantic era Ooh. in my own thoughts on this because it felt like they're towards the end, particularly, but kind of then reflecting back on the rest of the piece, there's this little bit of a religious overlay. You've got the cries of saints and demons issue from the carved cleft holes, which we've talked about a little bit. Uh, and I think this is an area where it really diverges from Ada Lamone's poem, where that poem is very much a humanistic connection of an individual to not just another individual, but it's the individual's connection to the piece of work. Whereas this is like bringing up this cosmic overlay, this very religion tinged overlay. And so particularly because of the way it ended, sending up moans from the pit we balance on the edge of, my immediate thought was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards, the famous Calvinist minister who gave that sermon in 1741. 
And his whole thing is basically we're all sinners. We're all balanced on the edge of a pit and left to our own devices. We would all fall in the pit. Uh, hell, unless God was there holding us back. And I found a little bit of the sermon, which I thought was appropriate for that little ending piece, which was, then they shall be left to fall as they are inclined by their own weight. God won't hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And then at the very instant, they shall fall into destruction as he that stands in such slippery declining ground on the edge of a pit that he can't stand alone. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. And it felt to me like that was going on a little bit at the end because you bring in these demons and saints and uh, we'll circle back to this, but I also feel like there's a little bit of like a sexual temptation thing going on throughout the poem. But that was kind of where I went with the end of it. And thinking along those lines, I was then reading uh, the arm saws and saws and all the sacred cries of saints and demons um, put me in mind of the Bernini sculpture, The Ecstasy of St. Teresa, which is this fairly well-known sculpture. I think it gets a shout out in one of Dan Brown's books. Um, but basically, it's about St. Teresa of Avila, who had a really hot dream about an angel. Uh, there's a lot of spear thrusting. And in the sculpture, uh, let's just say you should look it up and decide for yourself whether... It is uh, a uh, a religious ecstasy, <laughs> some sort of pain, or something else going on for Saint Teresa with the angel. Um, so that was sort of where I was making connections. Not strictly what you were describing, but I feel like it's kind of along the same lines of moving into this really consequential space. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, and I and I think I think you're right that there's especially when you were mentioning um, her book Lips, talking about you know her own experiences with finding religion and poems as prayers. Uh, that that sort of confirms that you know this end. You know, it's not just like a religious undertone. It's like I mean, we're talking about sacred cries of saints and demons. That's almost as explicit as you can get. Um, and I, yeah, no, I think that's, that's really right and interesting. And I, and I love the end. Um, I'm thinking about that pit, uh, which is like such a strange place to end on, I think, but also feels really right. But like the image itself, like all of us, it aches sending up moans from the pit we balance on the edge of um, the moans are very fascinating to me because on the one hand, it's like, we're all on the edge of the pit. So we're above the pit, including the cello. And I like one thing that I like a lot is that the cello at the end is connected to us. It's like, like all of us, it aches, you know, um, but then the moans are coming from inside, from beneath, you know, from in the pit. It's just interesting because the cello is moaning. There's a pit. I mean, one thing that's very deliberate, too, is there's, you know, the cello has a, a hole in it. You know, it's like a, it's the way that it is made up. It needs, it has that kind of, um, that's that. It's the hacked out heart of the tree, as Mary Carr says. Um, and, you know, the demons are coming from the carved cleft holes. So there's a kind of a pit in the cello itself, which is which is interesting. Um, and. And yet the cello is also I mean, this is maybe too literal, but it's also outside the pit with us aching. So I'm like, are we in the pit? Are we out of the pit? I don't That's really know where to go with that, but I, I was having an interesting uh, like a physics problem with where the bones were. <laughs> That's interesting. I took it to be that the cello and the we are still separated and that like all of us, it aches and it is sending up moans from the pit, 
that we, not the cello, but we as the listeners balance on the edge of. And I think that was partially because I was thinking of like an orchestra pit where all of the instruments are in the orchestra pit. And then we in the audience balance on the edge of it, edge of our seats, listening intently. Oh my God, the orchestra pit. So obvious and yet so profound. Perfect. I didn't even make that connection. I think you're absolutely right. So the pit is a, it's a, that's in that word, perfect poetry, because it's a great description. It's just the description of where the speaker is. There's the orchestra pit. There's maybe even sitting over it. um, Like if they have the kind of balcony type seats. Um, And yet it has the, the pit, the kind of, either the pit of hell or just a kind of abyss of, of unknown or death or something like that. Yeah. Wow. That's good. Um, I think you're right that they are separate in, in the we, um, I think that that makes more sense. But what that last line does contain as a connective tissue is that the cello is like all of us. And so when it's in the pit, it sends up these moans as we might, were we to enter into an abyss not necessarily hell, but just there is a lot of connection there. And I think that's a connection that's been built through the poem where you have the cello insists. So it's already being personified to a degree when it says you're dying. Um, It speaks from the core of the tree's hacked out heart, shaped and smoothed like a woman. So again, a connection to human beings. Every day the cello is taken into someone's arms, embraced, taken between spread legs. We can get to that in a minute. But again, a very human description. And so then when that, and also it shivers, it's shivering. And so that's both the resonance of the sound being created, but it's a word that we normally would use just to describe a human being. Um, So I think that that last line is really earned on that level by having laid the groundwork for how human this cello is along the way and i know that the the tone of a cello is also often because of the range of the notes on it is often compared to being very human and very much that it has a a human-like voice within the orchestra and that that does remind me one thing that i that i was so impressed by this poem and and i feel like it's one of its strongest qualities in terms of craft but also just like um yeah why why it's so affecting i think at the end um is that you know sometimes i we talk about how when you're using when you're making a kind of metaphor or any kind of image that is going to have like some sort of figurative meaning or connotation attached to it um if you can have the image be like apt sort of in a literal way right um but then also have the the feeling that's associated in the metaphor be correct um that's like you know 101 great poem work um and so this one what i love is that it takes you know one could say have a poem about the the ecstasy that one feels when they're listening to a cello and just talk about like other random shit. Like I was listening to a cello. It was like walking down the beach and the moon was shining and, you know, the waves were lapping and the love of my life was holding my hand or all that stuff. And um, obviously that specifically would be terrible because that's the worst cliche thing that can ever be uttered, but could capture one part of it, which is to say the feeling of it. And so the metaphor might work on that level. But what this poem does is it actually takes, it describes how the cello works um, in a very specific way that is like so cool. One, it starts from actually like, like I love, I just love, it speaks from the core of the tree's hacked out heart shaped and smooth like a woman. So then we're even talking about the mat- the actual material that a cello is made of. It's made from wood. Um, and to get the wood, you gotta, you know, um, you have to take 
the tree and you have to hack it up and make it into you know form it into this cello into this shape which in itself is such a particular and human process because the selection of the trees that make the very best orchestral instruments is really intense and in fact all of the instruments that we currently consider to be the best instruments ever were made from trees from like the same area that were around the same age and there's like a span of years during which most of these really famous like Stradivariuses and the other couple of like really hot companies from the same small area it's a span of time when they made all of their multi-million dollar instruments and some people theorize it's because there were a few cold summers i think it was in a row that like caused the trees to grow in a particular way it was like all this stuff but like wow. again it's this very particular natural process that then even after those trees are harvested once they are taken by human beings there's this really you know, personal handcrafting experience that takes place. You can almost see the B-roll in your head of the crafting of like the hands working the wood and bending it into shape and smoothing it and putting the finish on it. You know, you can see that slow-mo that we've all seen a hundred times in like a woodworking TV show for the Home Gardening Network or something. Like <laughs> it's, a, we have this whole idea of what that's about. That's this really personal connection you know, a, a window into the natural world and into that unknowable natural grandeur that can bring up exactly what you were talking about as a romantic big R idea of, you know, a connection to a nature that is so vast and beyond us that it creates this sense of sublime terror. Separately, I want a chef's table for musical instrument makers because I want that kind of food porn vibe, but just like, yeah, we're just making that cello. And then there's some guy like, you know, from Germany who's speaking very philosophically about, you know, this kind of tree and his childhood with the tree and, and uh, you know, his very first cello, etc. I have a musical instrument documentary I saw that's kind of, it's not really the same thing, but they do interview this guy who is the warden of a forest and also a poet. There's also this amazing interview with uh, the classical guitarist Segovia, who's like the guy in classical guitaring, where he talks about the guitar. So I guess it exists and... Um... Not in the form you're talking about, but there are there are snippets out there that yeah. get this a yeah. little bit. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I think that where Chef's Table might fail is that it knows that that's what it wants to make you feel. And so it's like not an authentic. It's like you're getting the all the signs of sublime, but without the sublime itself, perhaps. But I don't know if that's actually true. But it's very, it, you could say that it's contrived in a kind of way. A little but overproduced emptiness, over, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, I mean, the cinematography is beautiful. Oh, my God. I want to see those documentaries, but back to the poem. So we talk about the, you know, the cellist being described in the way it's made, but also the way it's played is very sort of accurate to how you play a cello. You know, um, every day the cello is taken into someone's arms taken between spread legs and lured into its shivering, right? Uh, the arm saws and saws. So those are all just like, that's, you know, when you play the cello, it's a huge instrument. You, you have to put it in between your legs and you're kind of like over it and, and your arm is, you know, it saws back and forth with the bow on the strings. Um, and, you know, and then the, the sound, you know, comes from, the holes that are made, you know, in the, in the wood of the cello or whatever. Um, and so from those descriptions, we get this sense of, you know, death. We get this sense of beauty. We get the sense of sex, as you were talking about, you know, the, the lured into someone's arm taken between spread legs. It's very sexual. Um, and we get all those feelings that, you might associate when to having that kind of like amazing musical experience. 
Um, but instead of just being like, I was walking on the beach, which has nothing to do with the cello, she takes the actual life of a cello and, and the process of playing a cello and uses sort of those concrete materials to get us to the sort of like the figurative, um, you know, experience or the metaphorical beauty or the, the abstract ideas about it. Um, and that's, I think, the kind of the crux of like how this poem is as good as it is. Totally agreed. And it also makes me think, so, I mean, we can talk about, we can talk about sex whenever we want. I mean, we're, it's a free country, but. Um, we're adults. <laughs> this poem made me think of when we talked about I's poem, um, I have to stop loving you. So I killed my black goat. But one thing yeah. that we talked about, about that poem was this idea of both the concrete and the abstract, the literal and the figurative, but then also the profane and the sacred, right? And that poem had this kind of grotesqueness to it that was kind of the extreme of the profane, um, you know, cutting open a goat, etc. that gets you to this like almost sacred or spiritual experience of trying to you know, this cleansing ritual from this person that you love or whatever. And I feel like um, a similar thing happens here where, you know, uh, in the same way that I was talking about the sort of the concrete literal process of playing a cello gets us to the metaphorical stuff. Um, it's also the profane, like, uh, not in the negative way, but just in the kind of the fleshy, the body, the sex of life is what gets us to the sacred cries of saints. For one, it's violent. There's a violence to how this is happening. You know, it speaks from the core of the tree's hacked out heart. Hacked out is so good. And hacked out heart is perfect, but it's like, A, it's like a double personification of the tree and then the cello. The tree has a heart that's being hacked to bits. And then that's being shaped and smoothed like a woman, um, which has its own sort of gendered violence in it, I think, sort of assumed where something is done to a woman to shape and smooth her into like sort of like a kind of socialization or, you know, whatever gender roles or something. You could you could go in a whole direction there, but there's that kind of force to it. Um, and then we have the. Every day the cello is taken to someone's arms, taken between spread legs and lured near its shivering. Um, and so there's this kind of sexual act or sensual act at the very least um, that sort of produces the sacred cries of saints and demons. Um, so I just, I love uh, how that's all working together. Um, and it seems like just such another great example of this relationship between things we might consider opposite, you know, the profane and the sacred or the divine and the carnal or whatever that are actually one sort of leads right to the other. Um, Definitely. And I think that's the overlay operating in the poem is that art or other things that would be categorized as worldly can still be a window into the sacred, that it's not just the purview of some kind of explicitly religious experience. Um, yeah. Smooth like a woman, I agree has this like potential gendered violence. I think there's also a long history of people being very obnoxious about the shapes of instruments. Uh, you'll see people describe guitars as shaped like women, even though they are clearly a dick uh <laughs> not really it's just kind of like decide what you want to see it's probably guitar shaped um <laughs> but the same is the thing with the cello where it's like ooh, it is shaped like a woman it is so seductive uh get out of here old dudes who play cellos um <laughs> one reading that could be explicitly sexual which i think also ties into the idea of this maybe being the featured part for the cello because a lot of times solos particularly improvised solos or ones that are done live or in more popular music particularly like a rock guitar solo or something they kind of start off and they gain an intensity and then there's like a really intense 
time in the solo and then it kind of tapers back into the song. I think we all can make some connections from that. Um, but I think like explicitly, right, Jack, if you say it, say it, it's like sex. Solos are like sex, sort of. There's a climax. It's a there's a climax. Fall. Well, there's a climax in the poem too. So I'm going to get to that in a second. Oh, okay. All right. Um, all right. But yeah, no, it's yeah. So with the cello, we're introduced that it insists you're dying, which if you're doing a sexual reading of the poem, le petit mort or the little death right there, you're getting clued in uh, the hacked out heart shaped and smooth like a woman. Be glad you're not hard wood. Yeah. So I think particularly the juxtaposition of smooth like a woman and hard wood as the two ends of those lines is pointing you pretty strongly in a direction. I underlined those and next to it wrote woof because uh, I felt like I was being bowled over by the raw animal lust in this poem uh, a little bit. Anyway, and then the next stanza gets us into that it is taken in someone's arms, embracing, and then taken between spread legs. It's not taken between legs, it's spread legs, which is the, again, as you're saying, that's the literal description of the mechanics of playing a cello, but it has some pretty clear, uh, like you spread your legs and it's, it's sex. And then after the spread legs, it's lured into its shivering, which I think could very well be read as the climax. You're, you're doing the work to make it get excited. Um, and the next description is the arm saws and saws, which again, I think could be pretty sexual as something to do with your arms. Uh, and it is that sawing that, that brings forth from the cello, both the literal sounds that it's making, but the way those are described is as the sacred cries of saints and demons and these moans issuing from a pit. Again, very sexual descriptors of the sounds of the cello. So I think there's a lot of very explicitly sexual language. Not, I mean, as you were saying, it could just be sensual, but I feel like it's at some points pushed beyond just the sensual into the explicitly more sexual. Uh, and that's how I read the poem. Yeah, I read it too. I, I agree with, with that. Um, yeah, and the hardwood is also, it's on the end of a line and the end of a stanza it's very so the sentence is be glad you are not hard wood yourself and can hear it if that was all in one line one could be forgiven for uh just thinking you know it, it would be more reasonable to say well that's just a description of be glad you're not a piece of like cello <laughs> and have <laughs> or a piece that was discarded to make the cello yeah be glad you're not a tree and have ears and can hear it um, which is like on the one hand, the, the kind of meaning of it. But because hardwood is in jammed, it's like, okay, you just are left with that image before you actually know sort of where it's going, what the point of it is. Um, and it's, it's closeness to shaped and smooth like a woman, I think is right. Um, it is interesting to think about though, if we think about the the sexual connotation of that, but then with what the sentence means, um, and maybe uh, maybe this is an overread, but like, be glad you are not hardwood yourself and can hear it. Part of me think it's like, be glad you're not a <laughs> you're not a man and can hear it <laughs> or something. Like I wonder. Well, in my most extreme overread, it's like a dig about men not being able to appreciate something about like this spiritual divine experience in a less aggressive overread it's like be glad in some ways that you're not in the sexual act yourself for this moment or something and can sort of like experience the music or the whatever um like from a distance and so are able to appreciate it I suppose. Um, or it could be like, I don't know. It's kind of like you want to be, maybe it's like, be glad you are, but then at the same time, it is just be glad that you're human and are not, you know, a piece of tree. Um, but it was, it was curious that, you know, the, it's like I felt clear about the connotation of hardwood and I felt clear about the literal meaning of the sentence, 
But then when I was like, well, if we think our both are happening, like what does that do to the connotative meaning of the sentence? Um, and I went some strange places, but I, I had no idea if you had were thinking about that at all. Uh, a little bit. As you were saying, it was the enjambment more than anything that had me thinking about the more connotative meaning or giving more importance to the connotative meaning because it is pointing it out. One thing that is also, which we've sort of talked about, the, one of my last thoughts is, you know, there's like something done to it kind of throughout. And I don't know where this goes, but we've talked a little bit about the violence or, you know, the fact that um, but, you know, there's the, the hacked out heart that it's speaking from the core of. It's shaped and smoothed like a woman. The cello is taken into someone's arms. You know, it's not um, going, it's not going itself into someone's arms, right? Um, Call up Liam Neeson. Got to rescue this cello. <laughs> That's true. For all you parents out there, don't let your cello go on a Euro trip. It's not going to go well. <laughs> don't let your cello follow you two around Europe. The conceit of the first Taken movie. A 17-year-old in 2000 and whatever teen is going to go follow you two around Europe. <laughs> full, full truth, though. I know a family. I had a friend who was going to go to Europe in high school and her dad saw taken and canceled the trip oh my god is art imitating life, life <laughs> imitating art i know at any rate <laughs> but there is violence in the poem and in fact i asked a friend of mine to read this just to sort of see what she thought and her takeaway is that it felt to her like an act of sexual violence was being described mm. well yeah i mean it is like you know it's taken into its arms. It's lured into, you know, lure is such a predatory word, right? Um, and and then saw is so, I mean, saw as the description for sawing the bow, that makes sense. But it's like the cutting also, it, it echoes back to the hacked out heart and the tree and... Um, so there is a real like, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think that's a very plausible reading. Um, it's certainly being coerced, you know, into producing this this moan, right? Um, it's an often unexplored tension, I think, that is being brought up when you have an inanimate object that we often imbue with so many human characteristics. Uh, and usually that's only done in a laudatory way. And it's like exciting and cool that this, you know, hunk of wood can be so moving and emotional, but actually it also has no choice. And there's like something kind of dark going on there. And that almost never gets brought up. And that's part of what I feel like is getting drawn out here. That's another really cool thing this poem has going on in it, which isn't very long, but like contains so much stuff. Yeah. Oh my God. So much. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit. I, I actually just listened to um, our good friends, Fiction on Fiction podcast. And yeah, their episode uh, that had uh, Madeline Miller and was going to have Emily Wilson, but was about um, the Odyssey. And Madeline Miller had written a sort of a novel that was about the character Circe from, uh, from the Odyssey that was like a bit a bit part that sort of she expanded into a novel. And then they also talked about Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey as the first uh, woman who's ever like, it seems like officially translated it. Um, and yeah, there were just a lot, I mean, it was a great episode, but there are lots of interesting, you know, sexual violence is like this, the center that all Greek myth kind of, revolves around which was something that they talk about um but then there's also this tension and this is more like the metamorphoses by ovid but this kind of like uh transformation of women into uh trees or you know 
ponds or flowers or there's lots of that kind of going on and um it just made me think about like that feels somewhat similar to the way that the cello is being talked about like this kind of um powerful but agencyless uh object that that is wanted by people or something or lusted for you know but in a way that's like pretty problematic um and yeah that was just that's even going further back than romanticism so i really started from like i mean geez <laughs> i love it i think it's great and what i really like is that this poem is in conversation with this idea that's been around for a long time, which is that when you have something that is so hugely impactful, it's it might be overall a positive for you, but the reason it's so impactful is because it is balancing this great light and great darkness, this great virtue and great, uh, you know, terror, or, you know, it's the fact that it contains both of those things that makes it have that impact. Um, and just thinking for me personally, anytime I've had an experience similar to this, it's because whatever exceptional thing I'm witnessing is balanced by like overcoming adversity or, you know, there's there's both the, the greatness of what's going on, but it's great because of the potential darkness. Um, and I think that 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 is just another another way in which this poem is really cool. Yeah, I agree. Um, should we read it again? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Carnegie Hall Rush Seats by Mary Carr. Whatever else the orchestra says, the cello insists, you're dying. It speaks from the core of the tree's hacked out heart, shaped and smoothed like a woman. Be glad you're not hard wood yourself and can hear it. Every day, the cello is taken into someone's arms, taken between spread legs and lured into its shivering. The arm saws and saws, and all the sacred cries of saints and demons issue from the carved cleft holes. Like all of us, it aches, sending up moans from the pit we balance on the edge of. Hey, this is co-host Jack Rossiter Munley here again. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find Close Talking on iTunes, on Stitcher, or on SoundCloud. On iTunes specifically, it would be absolutely fantastic if you like what we do on Close Talking, if you could leave us a rating and a review. That is the best way for more people to find the podcast. Uh, you can also, if you have thoughts on this episode, any previous episodes, if you want to get in touch with Connor or myself or write into the podcast, you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Close Talking. Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. And I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. And if you have longer thoughts you want to share with us or suggestions for future episodes, you can always send those to Twitter. But if you want to tell us a little bit more, we also have an email address, close talking poetry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and we'll see you next time.